welcome to Season 7 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, Coordinator for the series. Season 7 of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Douglas Kearney during his tenure as a Bagley Wright Lecturer. Douglas Kearney's lectures plumb the boundless curiosity, rigorous investigation, and linguistic chops that have come to be associated with the singular voice of their author. Across four talks, Douglas Kearney focuses his lens upon performance and its tensions, conflations of violence and entertainment, lineage and visibility, reading versus looking, and the shadowy gloaming in which both werewolves and prepositions dwell. Today, we'll hear You Better Hush, Black Tracking a Visual Poetics. This talk was originally given March 31st, 2021 at Seattle Arts and Lectures via Zoom. This lecture is called You Better Hush, Black Tracking a Visual Poetics. And it's for a growing list of people, but specifically Sean Webster, Era D. Matthews, Tariq Dobbs, Emmy Ann Kuriyama, Evie Shockley, Michael Demps, and Giovanni Singleton. Hush. It rushes in from out the deep tape hiss, a sibilant imitation of silence, the fecund dark from which a sonic world is sung into being. The choir breaking the hush, only to hush it. What loud silence is commanded here? A piano drags in its A-flat chord an instant behind Hush's exhalation, as though a sound could have a shadow. The aural field fills with the downbeat of beat-down footfalls, a four-on-the-floor percussion that conjures for us a ground in this sudden world. These footsteps open wide the rhythm's generosity, its plenitude, the imprecision of grace notes pulling and pushing the locked step along a long way from home to get to where we are. Hush. Now, with an E-flat seventh on piano, the Watts Line Choir under James Cleveland continues. The sung chord's insistence bends over the onomatopoeic command, gives shape to a vocal study in progress. The marched rhythm, in tension with the stage-whispered hush, makes a bid for quiet, for stealth, the congregant's movement must stay hush-hush. And it's the composition and technique that tell us this is a congregation, the harmonies characteristic of gospel, the glissando of the curved, blued note. And because this song is on an album inspired by Roots, the miniseries, we recognize that to hush one's steps, one's voice, one's prayer is to stave off death, to travel darkly, is to travel in darkness, hushed, perhaps to a hush harbor, those hollows where black people could go for to keep their worship hush-hush for somebody's calling my name. And when we come to know that that somebody sounds like Jesus, this song, in the context of a group both haunted and hunted, does an investigation of hush and utterances conundrum that you require the silence of Hush's Harbor to keep your flesh alive, but you'll break that silence to hear the call of physical death. What shall I do? Oh Lord, what shall I do? This lecture is about the noise that calls itself quiet. This lecture is about attempts to harbor sounds of black life in an insistent hush. And because this lecture is interested in sound black life, it is interested in what it means to be cut from one context only to be recontextualized into another. Thus, this lecture is about working through collage just as a choir may sing in study of quiet. Hush, hush, again and again. This lecture is about what I mean to conceal when I plan to hush in plain sight to be in the cut, in the cuts that compose the poems that cleave and cleave to my previous visual poetry. This lecture, it's about loud ass colored silence. I once taught a course in which we read and compared writing with analogous hip hop production techniques. 
An idea my students and I discussed in the first weeks was voice as a signal of blackness's presence rather than the presence of black folks themselves. We played tracks featuring techniques and textures of black vocal performances, rap flows with regional idiosyncrasies, melismatic R&B runs, traps like dubs, disembodies, disembodied ad-libs. I described how these point at blackness as material, like burnt cork, ready to be applied to any song or genre. Key to this formulation is that black voice slash voicing becomes a metonym for black people. We are associated with it, but because of forced import and unbalanced export in a marketplace defined by misappropriation, the extracted voice cum blackness gets packaged and shipped on some black shit which is to say, independently of its source. Regarding talk boxes, vocoders, and autotune, these articulations haven't the same long history of black coding as a blue note. So in changing the texture of the black voice, these technologies, particularly autotune, unsettle ideas of blackness from the not-so-distant past. Autotune's forcible pitch correction steps over the bent blue note, turning it from a slide to a stairway. This is a serious sonic break in aesthetics. From writer theorist Kojo Eshun's assertion that crate digging, sample coveting hip hop beatsmiths aren't necessarily devoted musicologists, but impatient, I'll adapt the proposition that the cut notes in an auto-tuned glissando might suggest impatience with the traditional sidle of the singing voice. From scholar and theorist Alexander Wahalea, I could call it, quote, reconstruction of the black voice in relation to information technologies, end quote. And autotune in contemporary black music is Afrofuturist under filmmaker, multimedia artist Colleen Smith's rubric in that it reckons with technology, reinvention, and motion. The uncanny valley of pitch-corrected vocals makes me think of cybernetics. Post-humanity? Uh, 21st century cyborg, sure. But also, black people as automata is a foundational misreading of our activities. The black singing voice been an emotional prosthesis. Its performance of sonic plenitude, some aural comfort food. A signal of being taken higher, taken back somewhere transcendent or below woe into a dry long soul hell. I've been to unsettle this, being a black poet bid to sing, to hush without voicing hush, to forestall a death varietal by way of a silence, which is to say, I've tried to compose poems that I cannot read aloud, to compose poems as legit loud as colored silences, to re-engage a visual poetics. So what is a loud-ass colored silence? In my reckoning, it is a teeming field of language. It is a radio station that thinks it's a photograph, a collage with palimpsest aspirations, a pin nib in the eye, poking it or jutting from it. At least, that's what they meant to be. I wrote seven of them for my collection, Buck Studies, Booming System, a.k.a. Miranda Rizites, Scat, Beat Music, Human Beatbox, modernism, moan, and protest. Each save that loud-ass colored silence, modernism, gestures towards a mode of utterance associated with black culture. This is not to say that modernism has no charm with black culture, only that one may not begin from the grounds that modernism is primarily about sound. Loud-ass colored silence poems work a number of compositional techniques I've been at since I started my performative typography poems. In her essay, Trauma and the Avant-Garde, poet and critic Suyun Juliet Lee describes the series in general and that loud-ass colored silence protest in particular. Presented as collaged, torn, and layered text with various whiteouts, font sizes, and overwrites, these works are visually loud in a way that conjures layers of posters lining public walkways in metropolitan downtowns. They confront the reader, asking them to abandon a conventional understanding of how a poem should appear on the page. These works invoke graphic design and literature. 
In that loud-ass colored silence, protest, Kearney directly references and protests the surplus of signification, that is blackness. If we imagine this work in visual layers, the base or farthest background layer references the famous civil rights protest song, We Shall Overcome Someday. However, the lyrics have been transformed. Some of the parts that are legible read, We are overcome. We are all afraid. The next layer appears in the largest font of the piece. Ain't I an am? I ain't what? And I can't ain't are further emphasized by their placement in rectangular boxes. The next layer up is composed of permutations of the now nationally recognized campaign and hashtag Black Lives Matter, but transposed as Black Lives Stutter, Black Lives Stammer, Black Lives Yammer, and Black Lives Mutter. I composed these poems, except, again, modernism, using page layout software. A later poem in the series, That Loud Ass Colored Silence, Turntablism, was uh, composed in a photo editing software. In nearly all cases, beat music being the only poem using the torn images Lee describes. I worked exclusively by typing into, then arranging text boxes I placed into the poem's empty open field. The typeface I selected for the body text of Loud Ass Colored Silence poems was the same as the other more conventionally formatted poems in Buck Studies. At the time, I thought this consistency would guide readers to keep reading rather than switch to looking. This anxiousness around whether my poems would be read versus looked at has been a part of my poetics for some time, but it wasn't until 2019 that I gained a more precise vocabulary with which to dehebe my jeebies. In the fall of that year, poet and scholar Evie Shockley convened Color Inside the Lines at Rutgers. In this symposium, participants assembled to discuss visuality and visibility of race in poetry. As defined by Shockley, visuality is formal aesthetic choices that draw poetry on matters of race and ethnicity into a prioritized relation with visual culture or the visual field. Visibility is cultural legibility and social representation, how race and ethnicity might be discernibly present in the work for actual or potential audiences. Visibility, it seems to me, corresponds to reading, visuality to looking. As a black person in a space, I recognize my visibility, the uttered hush of it, that I am misread as a present absence, absent presence. I am simultaneously here, a particular flesh and blood humanity and human, yet the materiality of blackness absents me as a specific presence, that I am visible when an eye needs me to be where I'm wanted for my unwantedness and invisible whenever I'm not needed. I imagined the visuality of the loud-ass colored silence poems would drive readers to more actively read what's visible, drawing them in by recalibrating legibility, performing a kind of typographic shimmy. I think they've done that. However, I also hope they would displace my body from spaces where its legibility gets recalibrated by others. And they might have done. But... My simple ass decided to read them aloud. And in voicing them, I rendered, I rendered them scores, undoing their resolution as visualities. They were not complete until I performed them, which amplified my visibility. Every collaged voice becomes additional fleshing. My throat rasps, my diaphragm announces itself by way of sustained sounds. My head ticks to render mechanical repetitions, spit, flies from my mouth, yet these techniques meant to perform collage as a vocal mode tears at the edges, these techniques tear at the edges of my lyric particularity. Here I was, meaning to be in the cut, only to start cutting up. The history of the African diaspora is one in which brutal decontextualization followed by violent recontextualization are the start of our what had happened was. 
What is it to reckon with what it is to be displaced, then replaced only ever as out of place unless we've been put in our place? This forced movement is similar to collage, a mode of production I've long found fascinating, perhaps because it seems to chime with an idea of black subjectivity. Perhaps it was once mere coincidence, though for nearly 30 years, collage has been, for me, a methodology, a praxis. Last year, however, I came out the shower thinking on this section of this lecture. I was standing in steam, daydreaming some insight about collage. Instead, I came up with the merely provocative. Humanity's first encounter with collage was death. And even this was not what I legit thought. Death isn't necessarily worked, since death can happen without a consciousness arranging it. A presence that seemed a requirement of art, which was where I was housing collage. Thus, humanity's first encounter with collage was a murder scene. And there we were there. I thought at the moment, that's it. Avel's nigh monochromatic incur monochrome incurs with the ever-read saturations of the body's interior. An ancestor making this encounter with the murder victim draws back before leaning in. The ancestor thinks this body shouldn't be there. All that red shouldn't be out here. It's come from somewhere else, and yet here it is. The decontextualization, read from the inside, forced into a new context, the outside, the standing context, a walk on the belt's nigh monochrome, transformed as well. Nothing the same. But my lightning bolt of euphoria fizzled to low-grade dejection super quick because I had bound art to murder. And for that moment, it was the truest thing I could think. But I drew back, box-browed out. I pop-locked and escaped like Richie Green from The Last Dragon, quitting murder to reconcile with sweet, innocent death. Humanity's first encounter with collage was a dead thing in an incongruent Habitat. An ancestor encounters something dead, not murdered per se, but dead nonetheless. Here's the thing. The thing is dead where it wouldn't usually live. Hectares and hectares of the veld's nine monochrome and what the? A stiff catfish or unfurled songbird. The ancestor, perhaps not drawing back at all, leans in, thinking this shouldn't be here, and yet here it is, gone from there, i.e. water or sky. Humanity's first encounter with collage was a dead bird on the ground. Again, not murdered per se, though I've murdered it, plucked it from the sky and set it down on the ground. In my head, it is not bloody, but it is red as a cardinal. But it isn't a cardinal. It is a red-ass bird from some African place. A uh, black-headed gonolek, uh, a firefinch, a red bishop. Sure, fine, okay, but it's dead. I won't say hunted. I didn't find it, but made it dead. Here, for this, an illustration. And why not the fish? Which is to say, humanity's, why not, humanity's first encounter with collage was a dead fish on the ground. Well, how does the fish get all the way here in the Felsenai monochrome? That is narrative, not collage. Humanity's first encounter with collage was a dead bird on the ground. It's easier to imagine a sky thing dropping to the ground than a water thing getting there somehow. I brushed my teeth thinking about the difference between a murder scene and a place where death is what had happened was. Whether decontextualization to recontextualization in a context required a hand to do the cutting, to make mobile the cut bird, the bird cut, wings flared from the sky to their splayed tragedy on the nine monochrome of the felt floor. This was some business and would be about when my anthropocy, my anthropocenist, <laughs> I always have trouble with that word. Maybe it's because I want to hush it. Anyway, uh, my anthropocenist chauvinism was set to flower in full. The bird plucking being mere lubrication for the privileging of art and will. In cahoots with the necropolitical power to kill. And top that off with a pearly jam of what I figure is masculine toxin. That art comes when someone else is made to bleed for it. Murder, I traded to a bird falling because birds die sometimes, not by stones. But there was death calling, 
calling, wearing maybe an acre skull instead of an off-white one. What shall I do? Humanity's first encounter with collage was a flower blooming where none had before. Hush, death! And flowers somehow rhyme with dead birds, their petals like down or feathers, no? Something, something spring, right? When my mouth was full of toothpaste, I wasn't thinking masculinist. That's me now, 15 minutes later, trying to sound intelligent or just virtuous. I was thinking about anthropocentricity, though. Dead ass. But what's the deal with me sprouting flowers to evacuate a masculinist space? I give myself some side eye. And at this point, now I'm composing in real time, all the way live. I'm sitting at our din dining table. There's a dog underneath it. But she's our dog, so there's an unpaid medical bill, a flashlight, this laptop. My mother-in-law is setting up her coffee and a bottled water. She lives with us, so. There's a postcard of my baby cousin, my glucose test kit. This is not a collage. This is just a mess, and we'll remain that as long as we insist on eating and dropping bills here. The ancestor wants me to regain focus. They write, they write. Humanity's first encounter with collage was a flower blooming where none like it had before. How free of flowers had the nigh-monochrome velt been prior to this lone blooming in order for it to feel like a new contextualization of field? Must the ancestor's familiarity with the flower be such that they recognize it, recognize it as coming from somewhere else and not just new here? That collage could occur without human intervention. Let's pick that red bird back up off the nine-monochromatic velvet floor. Black-headed garlic, let's get you back. What? You prefer hunting around in the undergrowth. Then it wouldn't be surprising to find you there on the ground in the first place. Why didn't... Okay, look. Just fine. You, Firefinch, your name is awesome. Firefinch is back in the sky. And... What is it, Red Bishop? Velts describe terrain in Southern Africa, and that's where you're from? So while the Firefinch is... Okay, well, what if it's a red-billed Firefinch? Thought so. Let's pick that red-billed Firefinch back up off the non-monochromatic velt floor. Let's set it back into the sky, a long way from home. Kick rocks, Red Bishop. The red-billed firefinch, our bird, my bird, picks up a seed somehow. Birds do this oh, all the time. It's a bird thing that happens, I know. I'll feed the red-billed firefinch to apologize for murdering it. The bird eats some of those seeds I have for it by the tree I just pictured. Good bird, good tree, good seeds. It eats some of these seeds, then somehow drops one or two somewhere else. Maybe it shits the seeds out. Maybe some seeds got lodged in its feathers and finally fall free. There's a plausible explanation for all of this. Certainly more plausible than how a catfish, whole, could wind up on the nigh-monochromatic velvet floor. The bird, our bird, my red-billed firefish, when it's not being dead, is quite the flyer. And there's your seed. Maybe in warm guano, and soon a flower blooms hectares from where it had been. Then... Our ancestor encounters it. Now, I'd argue that, that if the human has seen the flower before and knows that it usually blooms only hectares away from this place, that human might experience collage. Otherwise, they would experience, hey, new flower, right where the flowers are that always bloom here. In other words, I think the experience of collage requires that one recognizes two things from different contexts recontextualized into a new single one. Without recognizing that there was a decontextualization in the process, we might experience juxtaposition, but that's not all collage can do. Humanity's first experience with collage was a familiar flower blooming where none like it had before. Okay, I experienced something with collage that's more than juxtaposition. Something more transparent in its arrangement, such that the hand behind the new context doesn't get to keep its cutting hush-hush. That's what I'm after when I make work using collage as strategy. Disruption 
is a fact of collage. Whether we speak of the whole cut in one context as a part of its decontextualization, or our recognition of recontextualization on the other end of the procedure, something is where it wasn't and is doing some new work where it is now. The seedling breaching the surface of the dirt is a kind of disruption. It's not a disruption of how this plant works. Neither might we perceive the non-monochromatic velt doing something other than what it does, being a place where things can grow. But a seedling breaching the hood of a Toyota Sienna, I think for the disruption to be made plain, you mustn't imagine the plant growing smoothly from the mini-man's hood. You must recognize evidence of the decontextualization that made this new context. You must notice the cut. Fortunately, my ancestor's nine-monochromatic velt was a little short on minivans. So humanity's first encounter with collage was a familiar flower from some distant place, uprooted, still fresh, found on the ground. Careful, this feels like the beginning of a narrative. It must resolve into a new context though, one in which the velt is as shifted as the seed. Some of that could be offset by a third element. Consider this here, the velt, the site, still getting to be a site, all veltish and whatnot, adorned with an uprooted flower. Such a flower may be a dying flower if it isn't replanted well, and this flower, though uprooted and some considerable distance from home, is still fresh. This, makes, this takes me back to my earlier formulations with dead birds, of rhetorical causes and others, of scenes that suggest foul play. Was death a third recontextualizing element, recognizable as a disruption of the teeming life, a disruption that is not only aesthetic, there are lives to consider, but aesthetic nonetheless. The scene, theater of the crime is an arrangement of three dimensional things, composition, in this sense, the nature of the new context becomes operative, a third element at work without needing to cut from a third material source. For that to function in, humanity's first encounter with collage was a familiar flower from some distant place, uprooted yet still fresh on the ground among local flowers growing in the field. That's a lot. If the where isn't just the veil, where flowers could grow, but set amongst flowers growing is what draws us to see the flower cut from a field several yonders away, a flash first of a different shape or a different color, something we don't recognize until we recognize it. And in that instant collage, a flower, you've seen it before, though hectares from here, hectares back, closer to where there is water. The flower is red as dead, a dead, red bishop. Still, the flower is there, uprooted, dying, but rather fresh against the blue blooms. Impossible, those red flowers do not grow here. It does not go here, yet here it goes. And now this blue flowering velt is a velt with an uprooted red flower. My ancestor demands an explanation. Oh, Believe me, my ancestor has a perfectly good capacity for analysis and wonder. If they are hunting or foraging, they've left the known food sources behind. But like a catfish on a velt floor, nigh monochromatic, crashing onto or into a sea of blossoms, my ancestor wants to know how the flower got here. But before they get to the how, they are in the disruption of what? And then, that humanity's first encounter with collage was some disruption of their sense of place. Humanity's cut, humanity cut its first encounter with collage when it didn't recognize how the disruption occurred. This uprooted bloom, a long way from home, almost gone. I am fascinated by the compressed drama of somebody's calling my name. And here I mean the song as a whole. Though there are as many recorded variations as a tradition of repetition and revision is bound to produce, the consistent declaration, somebody's calling my name, is a marvel. 
It links the realm of the physical and spiritual. The speaker needs someone in the physical world to hush so that they might better hear the call simultaneously issuing forth from the supernatural. The speaker straddles life and death and with the repeated what shall I do seems in a position to make a decision about a physical life. That in a refusal of eternal life is a kind of death or to choose physical death for eternal life. Proximity to death, that is to be almost gone, haunts sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a spiritual dating all the way back to the day's roots, the 70s miniseries Chronicle. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone, a long way from home. Death is so close. The absence of references to God in Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child's lyrics, or at least the versions I know, suggest that home might not be a heavenly one. To die a long way from home is to die alone among those who may not care for or about your death, who may not petition for your life on your behalf. If God is in the picture, there's no room for the hopeless sinner who winds up all the way gone, a long way from the presence of the Lord. This seems to me to be the epistemology of most versions of somebody's calling my name. Many variations include the line, soon one morning, death come creeping in my room, and followed up with, I'm so glad got me religion all the time. A more recent version, recorded by multi-instrumentalist Ry Coder, offers no such relief. It begins with a command to hush, similar to traditional versions. You better hush, hush, hush. Yet the addition of you better makes the implicit threat of ordering hush explicit. In Coder's bleak take, the speaker hears someone, a bedside mourner, not Jesus, calling their name for the petition and absentee Jesus on the speaker's behalf. Somebody is calling my name, crying, oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord. The drama unfolds around the speaker, reminiscent of Emily Dickinson's I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died, where in traditional versions, the speaker is ultimately saved, having found religion. Coder's speaker may die in desperate uncertainty, knowing only that their mother cannot help them. You can call for your mother but your mother can't do you no good. Coda's version posits that sound or silence in the absence of a spiritual realm, both come to death. I heard Coda's version first as a sample on X-Clan's second album, Exodus, the song Fire and Earth, 100% Natural, juxtaposed the sample with an interpolated intro from the Jimmy Castor Bunch's Troglodyte. Under that collaged convo, an organ plays Pop Goes the Weasel at an awkward, dirge-like tempo. Then, a gunshot. A velt, a dead fish, bird, uprooted flower. This audio collage I came to recognize in the context of the X-Clan album, then amplified by the music video, is the dig at white anti-black lies about black folks being primitive. Castor is cut to ventriloquize white racist fantasy synced in the video to found footage of a white man performing in blackface, naming black people cavemen, cave women, Neanderthals, troglodytes, which is to say, calling us out our names. Recontextualized from the 1986 Cooter take, You Better Hush seemed to me to be telling white people to shut the fuck up or else. After each negative caster sampled epithet, we hear the sampled hush until the gunshot hushes caster, retorting with a corrective, somebody's calling my real name. My name. Then the call. Brother Jay drawling, oh yeah, come on, come on, come on, followed by a back and forth routine between Jay and Professor X, to the east, my brother, to the east, to the east, my brother, to the east. What X-Clan's usage of the sample, the sample source, and the sources that the sampled source samples have in common is the arrangement of multiple voices in overlapping crosstalk. What draws me to them is the multifarious arc of the word, hush. 
It is an entreaty, a command, a threat. Now, if you look up X-Clan, you will find that in a lawsuit filed in May 2020, members of X-Clan stand accused of repeatedly raping Patrice Griffin in 1989. At the time, Griffin was 14 years old, had run away from home, and was sleeping in the offices of X-Clan's organization, the Black Watch Movement. The two surviving members of X-Clan vehemently deny Griffin's allegations. Hush. Prior to Rutgers' color in the lines, visuality and visibility of race in poetry symposium, I asked the convener, Evie Shockley, for a prompt that could guide my remarks. She replied, I'm personally interested in whether or in what ways you think of your visual poetics as black, as opposed to the subjects you take up in them, or to what extent you think of your viz poetics as making it less easy to look away from the analytical work you're doing so to speak. In 2019, I chose the first. I was excited to come get to a closer consideration of blackness as a graphical arrangement of language. Much of what's left of this lecture pursues that thread. Yet, I think now the second option, how my visual poetics might make it easy, less, make it less easy to look away from the analytical work my poems do. Chocolate, signifying on the lyric from Dixie, is suggesting more than a reader looking away. From a critical analysis out of disinterest, Dixie, a minstrel song that boomed in popularity during the Civil War as an anthem for homesick Confederate soldiers and nostalgic folk back, back home, offers a mode of looking away that abets Black subjugation. Wondering over hushing myself as a performer of loud-ass colored silences, I'm unsure of whether a reader's decision to not look away trades on the assumption that they will later be able to look at my colored ass reading the poems for them or teaching them how to read them, like demonstrating a new dance. Shockley's prompts were not mutually exclusive, and I hope I haven't cast them as such. I could, for example, argue that the possibility of surveillable blackness, option one, might be what draws the eyes to option, to option two. But what's recuperative about the second option is Shockley's focus on the analytical work she locates in my poetry's visible and visual qualities. As Lee puts it, much of Kearney's work offers performances of improvisation, collision, rupture, and augmentation through an often deliberate performance of excess. The layers of different typographic typographies reference different periods of time and competing rhetorics. This work refuses to let us ignore the violent erasure and consumption of black bodies across history through the visual layering of language. This performed excess is a dintelligible crosstalk. And I'm going to share an image right now from a, a short poem series called uh, No North Express. Dintelligibility is a concept I describe thusly. A phenomenon where what appears as noise in noise to some, thus insensible but perhaps sensual, is in fact complex contrapuntal signals resulting in a legible noise, sensible, sensual, and sensible through the sensual and vice versa sensual or sensual or sensible If there's blackness, a blackness, to the visuality of my visual poetry, if there's blackness, a blackness, to the visuality of my visual poetry, it exists not first as a material, but as an activity of recognition in intelligibility. It's essential to put down that in no sense is this about an essential blackness. Era D. Matthews is currently laying shade on that, pinning penumbra, umbrage token, as one might say, to the bridge and thrown off. Here, I am reminded of a TV spot from back in the day for the Black Femmes lifestyle glossy, Essence. Essence is you. This jingle ran round about the same time as the hood-tastic Hey Love Slow Jam compilation was in mail order readiness. No, my brother, you've got to buy your own. 
to the knockoff Billy D. These two ads duetted to death on BET, Bet, between clips on video soul and video vibrations. These ads, like Aretha and Jerry's McDLT advert, for us, for us to buy. That is, to buy our own. That essence, lowercase, is us, in so much as any mask on is simultaneously a mask on and mask off. Which is to say, a mask on, or cultural mask concentration, thanks Stephen Henderson, what we say we say we recognize when we say we are seeing ourselves seeing ourselves, a.k.a. the nod, the that's the jam, the not me. I'm going to run that back. A mask on, or cultural mass concentration, thanks Stephen Henderson. What we say we recognize when we say we are seeing ourselves seeing ourselves, a.k.a. the nod, the that's the jam, the not me. Now, I'm going to share with you an image of a graffiti wall. A graffiti wall. Bombed, tagged, wild style, stickered, which is the paradigmatic image from which the previous poem upjumps, is neither unique nor formally particular to black social spaces. That such a wall got bombed on due to several factors, some socioeconomic, and some aesthetic, which in some cases includes intentional strategic communal participation via a crew of graph writers. That such a wall might exist and might not be painted over because of several more factors arranging and extending the initial ones. That such a wall might not only indicate blight, but signify a teeming excess of signal, the visual equivalent of the raucous ass knucklehead chorus that is a hip hop posse cut. That I might recognize such a wall with at least two sets of eyes on that word recognize is less about seeing what I figure would be an essentially specious essential blackness. Rather, it's this rhetorical doubling of recognized, synesthized, and synthesized to an encounter, to an encounter with the page that has me thinking of black visuality vis-a-vis visibility and vice versa, as Dr. Shockley proposes them. I'm saying the rhetorical construction of recognize as applied to the visual field is where I'm housing a working blackness. That these poems, like the sonic collage productions of DJ Premier, Madlib, or Jay Dilla, play on the ability to recognize the cut. These artists use samples to make music, an intertextual and intertextural music. For sampling is after more than the phrase. This is something I think people who don't think much about sampling don't really recognize. That those who are sampling are after text and texture. And often they are after a multiplicity of textures that will combine to make a single text. These textures must, and I don't mean this aesthetically, but technically, by which the aesthetic may follow, have different textures because the sources were recorded using different instruments, with different players, on different mics, in different rooms, using different mixes, made by different engineers, stored on often different media, at often wildly different stylistic eras. It isn't just about a baseline. It's about all of those differences juxtaposed with other differences and how they hold together or fall apart. It's timbre. And in that relation to recontextualization, the disruption of the chopped breaks in a composition whose anomalous textures form a new one, we recognize what's happening and nod our heads to the fact that despite all the cuts, it has a pulse. I want to compose poems that play on the ability to recognize that cut. But how? Via texture. The loud-ass colored silence poems with their smooth typefaces might only signal collage through quotation marks or a multiplicity of typefaces. Yet in the act of retyping the text I meant to collage, I was not cutting, but quoting. That is, it was not clear that the blooms were removed from other fields. These poems, composed with photo editing software, preserve the textures of the sources' letter forms. Each poem collaged from dozens of different sources across centuries of printing and scans of widely ranging resolutions. 
Then there's the texture of the cutting itself. Ascenders and descenders clipped. Diagonal shearings that can't the typographic baseline. Cleavings beneath the X heights. All of this a la poet Susan Howe's remarkable poems. These techniques presence the cut and the act of cutting. Meaning my hand's act of cutting isn't in the cut. composition working on it from Jay Dilla's Donuts are textual and textural composites, pieces that decenter a, flesh, a fleshy lyric voice, but distribute my voice through the constellative layers and interruptions, proximities and nubbings, the dintelligible frequencies of optical utterance the reader is called to recognize. Recognize, as in know again, and as in acknowledge. And here, I want to resist a primary and secondary ordinance as sequence in the dictionary that a one and a two, rather I am thinking of a simultaneity similar to what I think gets activated in South Central LA vernacular, you better recognize, which stages recognition as acknowledging what you already know again, lest it teach you what you should know you know. In this way, Gangster rap songs that have that phrase in them favor the older hush hush by way of you better hush, an admonishment for silence to allow for recognition of what's known. The song's speaker commands hush, hush, somebody calling my name. In that song, there is death in what may or may not be recognized, but the act of attending is what we attend to in the lyrics opening. You better hush. That command lies in the cut of you better recognize. For the you better and the insistent hush is in its structure a sideways threat, even when uttered in play. Recognizing in, in, in its activity is a reading of context and an understanding of the conditions that compose it. Let shit go sideways. This relates to mess, which I've written about before as a liminal space, the passage between order and garbage. That sign in signify, that is semiotic, but also conjures semiotic, like a tag is a gang sign on a street sign that tells you whose streets these aren't, even as they put names all up in the street. You better recognize when I see it, that in essence, I recognize I am there and not there. It isn't me, it isn't my own, but it is temporary, transitional. A graffitied wall is a mess, thus it isn't in essence blackness. The black folks, the shit, at recognizing the message in that shit, the signal in that noise. So to get to Dr. Shockley's prompt, CPT-like, what's the blackness and the visibility and visuality of my work? I want to press toward approaching black recognizing's activity. That is, that it isn't a one and a two, but that in my new work, visibility and visuality might be simultaneous, e.g. looking at how I stay looking at what I'm looking at. This process, for me, activates a poetics as consonant with a long-term, sometimes ironic investigation of the condition of having context mainly through forced recontextualization. I mean to understand a black existential reality by way of an aesthetic process. I mean to engage strategies concentrated in black compositional traditions and their attendant institutions. The Kojic choir's floating stances, the cutting session, the crew's over-talking and boomboxes, the corner's diegetic intersection, the meeting after the faculty meeting, the war council playing a voicemail on speakerphone, the salon, hair. Also, that shit slaps. But Black It Can is the first of a series of speculative fiction poems. The project's framework 
Each would be a piece of rhetorical sonic armor drawn from a genre of Afro-diasporic music. But Black, it can't, like similar collage poems, developed as a series of relational activities and recognitions. The seed of the poem is a quote from an interview of the hip-hop producer Ninth Wonder, published in the now-defunct magazine Scratch back in 2005. Ninth had a rep as a throwback-style producer, hearkening to boom-bap associated with folk who might consider themselves true-school hip-hop heads, but would be called backpackers derisively for their associations with geeky college fan bases and their requisite jam sports. Ninth famously used a software platform called Fruity Loops for his beat-making, the loop being the basic form of sample-based, so-called real, hip-hop. In the interview, Knight stated, every produce, quote, every producer should flip Nautilus by Bob James. It's a rite of passage. I freighted this quote in my mental critic for a hot minute, usually using it as a route by which to track the roots of the, dis of the distinction between loop-based and chop-based hip-hop production. So, here is the first minute or so of the original. Space Killers Daytona 500 from his album Iron Man. Who rock Mac knowledge, knowledge is street astrologers, light up the mic, God knowledge is block choice, the character points, Corolla, Motorola, Ola, play God. And here's Ninth Wonder himself uh, with the MC uh, Merce, an LA based MC, um, for their track Murray's Revenge, which is the eponymous uh, track for the album Murray's Revenge. Uh, Ninth here chops up Nautilus as he directed. Every producer must do. Alright. Yeah. Once again. intestines are sometimes described as loops. I looked up Nautilus, anatomy, and loop, and found a 19th century text I proceeded to chop and collage. The poem was shifting, in part because I was changing my mind about how I was going to do what I was going to do, but also because the resources I found, even the ones I decided not to use, were reshaping my sense of what the poem could say. Specifically, I was back and forth with myself about how many pictures of objects versus pictures of words would be up in this piece. The armor series wants at some level to be indexical. This is a shield. This is a helmet. This is a cod piece. I wanted to do this without pictures of the same. I opted at that moment to remain constrained with symbols that are typographic. The base clef rhymes with the shell of a nautilus. Its curve and synecdocal spiral begin the eye's trip while still reading as a symbol, meaning here, bass, a significant component of hip-hop music. Associative success, 
but I felt I needed something else to amplify the visual pun. Bass clef equals Nautilus shell. So I included the golden section. The golden section diagrams an abstract concept of purported visual pleasure as a kind of formula. It felt less like an illustration to me than a reduction of a shell. Plus, Nautilus shells and the section have been associated in the past. This tracked. The intestinal loop text, bass clef, and golden section became the optical center of the poem. I began to add more and more. Accretion becomes a factor as added textual elements create new or deepened associations and increased intertextual crosscuts. What was a nonce idea becomes a head, a motif, as it might in an improvisational music performance. Similarly, here, I'm working to attend to possibilities, to perceive. Sometimes I know the precise phrase that will chime with part of the composition, but the poem's textuality is not centralized. It's communal and relational, which means in the case of this poem, I didn't know I had anything for sure until I was maybe 75% in. And that instant came with the moment of improvisation and association. Backpacks had proven too complicated to work into the poem without a visual referent. At one point, I had little straps and buckles stuck on letters. Trust, this, this is much better. So I decided to just name a piece of armor. It was difficult to find a part of armor designed solely for the warrior's back. That would suggest they ran away from battle. So I settled on Quiris, returning to the lexical motif that had anchored the poem. Loop. I searched Quiris and Loop and found this. You don't seem excited. This is what makes the poem work. Quiris Loop number 36 is from a book of military history, more specifically about the Roman invasion of Britain. Quiris Loop number 36, uprooted from that book, floating without context, does little. But recontextualized into the veldt of this poem. 36 alludes to the Wu-Tang Clan's first album, Into the 36th Chamber. That album is part of a narrative framing an East Coast hardcore corrective to G-Funk's early 90s dominance. Thus, Enter the 36 Chambers is a totem of so-called true school hip-hop. It's a backpacker's grail. And it's big Raucous posse cut? Protect your neck. A call for armor. You better recognize. Yet, how does this tie to silence? If I don't hush and instead fix to voice these poems with my flesh, my throat's small lexicon of timbres, my diaphragm's limited air, my head's slow calibrations, the spit that sputters pronunciation. All these would natter and chatter, talking over the poem's call. Hush. My body would make the poem unrecognizable. I would become something to look at as a means to look away from what the poem is there to show you. And in all that loud ass business, I too would be unable to hear the poem's call, so afraid of a physical silence that may actually stave off a kind of death. Hush, I am sick of being a specious prosthetic mouth, a grotesque one with impossibly swollen lips, swollen as if struck or drawn to look struck, struck with what? A fist, a grease pencil, a peculiar idea that I am a caveman with no language, I might just be a pair of lips on a pair of legs, legs that know the latest dances, legs with feet that don't fail, troglodytic strong legs for the support toting of bales. Hush. I get tired sometimes of speaking. I open my mouth. The words skitter out in zippy preposterosities, eloquentessences, electrolocutions, words so big they gape my massive shit-talking mouth, emerging slick with my spit, that ancient elixir, articulation sweat, my puckers all tuckered and wearied. I turn to moan some, but with the thick ribbons that's my lips, it sounds like someone's Christmas. 
What shall I do? What shall I do? You better hush. That was Douglas Kearney giving his lecture, You Better Hush, Black Tracking of Visual Poetics. Kearney's book, based on his BWLS lectures, Optics Subwoof, is forthcoming from Wave Books and is available at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about this and other talks and writings by Bagley Wright lecturers, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to Seattle Arts and Lectures for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.